Today we're starting chapter 6 of John's Gospel, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And Amy's going to come up and read this passage, verses 1 through 14, in a minute, because I forgot to think about somebody to read, so I just asked her before we got out of the car (laughs) a few minutes ago (laughs) to read it. Here's the thing. John's gospel is thematic. And as a result, his narratives jump around and they're not chronological. And for a long time, I would read the gospel of John and it just seemed so random the way he would jump from one story to another. I understood his kind of themes generally that he would follow, but it was like, I don't understand what you're doing, John. Why are you doing it this way? And this week, it just started making more sense. And chapter 6, with Jesus feeding the 5,000, is not as random looking as it first was. He has this big confrontation with the Jews over Moses here at the end of chapter 5, actually the entire second half of chapter 5. And now he goes into these next series of events in chapter 6 that all show he is greater than Moses. He's setting things up for what's about to happen by giving these amazing events that occur next with the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. And so I'm just amazed at the literary genius of John's writing this gospel. I mean, to me, this is so ingenious, the way he structures it, that it can't be humanly inspired. It has to be divinely inspired to pull this all together. So with that very long introduction, Amy, come on up and please read John chapter 6, 1 through 14. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercies. The way that you just give us so much more of yourself. Lord, thank you for 
giving us your word. And Lord, we ask that now in this time when we look into your word, that you would just leave us in awe and just wonder and amazement at who you are and that how gloriously beautiful Jesus is. Not just as our Savior and our Redeemer, but as the fulfillment of everything Scripture brings into hope. And we ask, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts in this time, that you would prick the areas that need to be pricked and that you would soothe with the healing balm of Gilead the areas that need to be soothed in our hearts. Pray, Lord, that we would come away from this time looking into this feeding of the 5,000 miracle with an amazement at who you really are. And we just thank you for loving us this much. In Jesus' name, amen. So I really have a lot of things I want to try to do today. In addition to, you know, this feeling like it's going to be a little long, keep your fingers nimble because we've got a lot of places to go in your Bibles today. So this whole thing about after this, the beginning of this phrase, the beginning of the chapter with this word after this, it's just a generic passage of time. Uh, we know from the other Gospels because, look, this feeding of the 5,000 is in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record it. As is almost often the case, John has a couple of things in his recounting of the narrative that's unique to what he says, and it's not there with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But we know from the other Gospels that this was a significant amount of time that passed between this confrontation with the Pharisees in Jerusalem in chapter 5 and this moment now in this desolate place in Galilee. And as I said, remember that John's gospel is thematic, it's not chronological, and he is intentionally connecting Jesus and Moses with this miracle immediately following his accusations with the Pharisees about their disobedience of Moses in chapter 5. The other thing about the actual location on the shore of the Sea of Galilee is really not that important. A lot of times the physical spot where Jesus is doing something is important. And this one is true too. The geographic spot is important, but the actual location itself is not as important as it is the designation that this place is a desolate place in the wilderness. And then we have this whole thing in verses 5 through 13 of the actual miracle itself. Because we are told that it was a crowd of 5,000 men. Well, this means that it could have been between 7,000 and 20,000 people. I kind of think the 20,000 number seems a little high, but nonetheless, I mean, it's averaging one man, one woman, and two children for each of the 5,000 men. That comes out to 20,000 people, possibly. And it's complete speculation, but what we know is that it's way more than 5,000 that this miracle is covering. At the very least, the bottom lowest number it could possibly be would be 7,000. And so... It's still just stunning to think about this. How many of you have been in a place with 7,000 people all at once? There's been a couple of concerts where I was close to that. Right? I've certainly been in football games where there was way more than 20,000. Right? I grew up in the southeast where college football is equivalent to worshiping God. 
and you know stadiums that hold 60,000 people and they're completely full. So I've certainly been in those settings. And imagine your job is to feed everybody at the stadium. No, thank you. Not doing that one. I'll take this like section that I'm sitting in and feed these hundred people, but I ain't feeding the hundred thousand. And so when we think about the numbers, it's just almost stunning and overwhelming to try and grasp the idea of a first off a crowd this large on the Galilean hillside there off the shores of the Sea of Galilee and and a group this big to be fed, I start to sympathize with Philip and Andrew at the almost exasperation of Jesus' statement to them, we're going to feed these people. Have you not been paying attention to how many people are here and where we are? But of course, when Jesus makes that statement, as John tells us, he already knew what he was going to do, which raises a question, why does he ask it? if he already knows what he's going to do. As is often the case with Jesus, he asks a question not because he doesn't know the answer, but because he wants his people to think. And in some cases, you could call it a testing of their faith to find out where they are. He's just simply saying, let's see where these guys are. How much faith do they have? And then you have these five loaves and two fishes. Now, the number five and two add up to seven, which maybe might mean something, but we just don't need to get wrapped up in the significance of the number of loaves and fish. We don't need to get caught up in that swirling vortex of trying to make the numbers mean more than they really do. And I just don't think that the number five and two really are that significant. What's significant, though, is that they are barley loaves, that John and all the gospel writers take the time to differentiate out, well, I think all of them do, that these are barley loaves. Now, most of us, for most of us, that just kind of skips right over our heads. It doesn't really mean very much. But it's important because barley was a poor man's grain in Jesus' day in that region. The wealthy families used wheat flour And the poorer families used barley flour. And so this was not a wealthy, middle-class kid. He didn't have a Nintendo and a PlayStation at home, right? He's not one of those kids because he has barley loaves. And the having of the barley loaves means that they were a poor family. And Jesus takes this very humble, poorly provision and uses it for a miraculous Amazing provision. And then we have the 12 baskets that are left over. And they are symbolic. That number does matter, right? Because it represents the 12 tribes of Israel and a full basket for each tribe so that all in the nation of Israel are provided for with more than enough. That's the meaning of the 12 baskets full, that everybody in Israel is taken care of with everything they need, more than enough. But all of these sort of facts of this miracle and this amazing act of miraculous provision that Jesus does, taking these five barley loaves, and somehow when people start breaking the barley loaves up and handing them out, they just keep multiplying more and more. 
The same thing with the two fish as you break off a piece of fish and hand it to somebody that just keeps getting to be more and more and it just never runs out. It alludes back to and reminds us of the miraculous provision with Elijah and the widow in Samaria during the great drought where her oil pot and her flour container never ran out. And while it's true that 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 event and the greatness of Elijah is paralleled here or at least alluded to, that's not really the parallel, the one that John's drawing out and the one that we need to grasp. The part that we need to grasp is the parallels between Moses and Jesus. And John alone here mentions in verse 4 that this event was during the Passover. He intentionally wants us to make this connection between Jesus and Moses and the Passover. The fact that it's the Passover will become more important when we look at next week's section of Jesus walking on the water. But it's still relevant here because it just makes this clear connection to that period of time right after the Passover when they escaped Egypt. That this whole section, in fact, all of chapter 6 is tied to those 45, 50 days right at the moment of the 10th plague, the celebration of the Passover, the escape from Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, and everything else that happens in those first 50 days after the 10th plague. And in fact, to really start to understand all these parallels, we need to turn to Exodus chapter 16 and read verses 9 through 18. So I encourage you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 16. I reprinted the section I'm going to read, very big print, so that I can see it. That's why I'm not turning there in my Bible. So starting in verse 9, Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And in the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more and some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. So we see here that in this moment that's described here in Exodus chapter 16, God is giving them manna for them to have as bread, and he's also given them the quail to eat as meat to satisfy their hunger. And it says that everybody had everything they could eat. 
Nobody had too little. Nobody had too much. And so when we start looking at the parallels between this event and Jesus feeding the 5,000, we see some stunning similarities. Both Moses and Jesus are with large crowds in a desolate place where there's no provision for them. Both crowds are hungry and in need of something to eat. In Exodus, it's a very frustrated and unhappy crowd, about 45 days after the Exodus from Egypt. And here, there's not a sense of that in John's gospel or the other gospels that the crowd was complaining or that they had this expectation. But nonetheless, you have these big crowds that are hungry and need something to eat. And there's absolutely no reason to believe that there's provision for this many people in this desolate place. And just like in the wilderness with Moses, here Jesus, the Lord, provides miraculously for each group through his servant with more than enough for each person. Yet... There is one very significant difference between these two miraculous provisions. And I'm not referring to the numbers of people. Moses' provision was incomplete. It required the receiver to do additional work to eat. Turn over a few pages to Numbers chapter 11, verses 7, 8, and 9. So starting in the seventh verse of chapter 11... Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bedlam. The people went about and gathered it, and ground it in hand mills, or beat it in mortars, and boiled it in pots, and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. You see, they, when we read the account in Exodus, you know, we often come away from that just thinking, oh, they just went out and picked up flakes of bread and had bread. But that's not actually the way it worked. It was this coriander seed type stuff that they then had to grind it into flour and use it to make into bread dough and then cook it, bake it, so that they could have bread. And if you think about the quails, they captured the quails, but then they had to field dress the quails and cook them to be able to have meat to eat. So the provision of Moses in the wilderness was incomplete and that it required additional work by the Israelites to have bread and meat. Jesus' provision, however, here in this miraculous feeding does not require any work by the receiver. It was edible at the moment Jesus gave it to them. Bread completely cooked, ready to eat. Fish already cooked, ready to eat. No effort on their parts. There is symbolic meaning in the differences. Just as the old covenant was a covenant of works represented by the works needed after God's provision, grinding the man and baking and field dressing and cooking the quail, so also the provision was doing the works of the law. But now in the new covenant, the one of grace, where the work is already done, the bread and fish ready to eat with no effort, and we do no work to be made right with God. Even in this miracle, he is showing how he is greater than Moses. Not because he fed more people, but because he gave a more perfect provision. And a more perfect provision that symbolizes the grace of salvation through faith, not by works. And then we come to this verse 14. And when the people saw what the sign that he had done, they said, 
This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. If there was any confusion left about this possibly being a comparison between Jesus and Moses, John completely solidifies this idea in the reader's minds by making this direct connection to the prophet. The point that John is making of Jesus and Moses is the one started in the previous section with Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees and them not obeying Moses. John brings the point home here in verse 14 because the prophet is the one Moses said would come in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The same one the Samaritans were waiting for in John chapter 4. Now do you start to see how unified the gospel of John is despite how it first it might appear as random? Chapter 4 introduces this idea of the great prophet from Deuteronomy chapter 18 with the Samaritans. He brings it over into the confrontation with the Pharisees in chapter 5. And now here in chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000 and the rest of the chapter we'll look at in next week and the week after. He emphasizes again the prophet promised by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18 is here. The people see it. The common, oh, unclean people see he is the great prophet, but the Pharisees still can't. Even the Samaritans can see that he's the great prophet, but the Pharisees can't. How? How? Well, that's a question that Jesus will answer for us later especially as we get into chapter 8 of the Gospel of John. And it's a very unpleasant answer as to how. They couldn't see that he was the great prophet promised in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. But thankfully, the people did. And there seems to be an element of truth in this for us today, doesn't it? That the elites can't seem to see the reality of God and the Gospel But oftentimes it is the common man who does. An illustration of this point was the Ashbury. I'm sorry. I always, I never get that word right. I have it stuck in my head the wrong way. So I'm just going to say it the wrong way because it's just stuck there. Ashbury. It's Asbury. The Asbury revival. They're a bunch of stinking Methodists. They're not even Baptists. And they got it. There's a little bit of humor there, yes. You should be laughing. Thank you so much for laughing. Who? A a Methodist college is where the Spirit decides to show up? Really? I mean, what about the great cathedrals of the great cities? The Spirit's not going to show up there? He chooses that place that gives us hope if he'll show up in a place like Asbury and then the other colleges that seem to have erupted themselves in the areas around it maybe he'll show up here maybe he's still the same God who chooses the lowly over the exalted Maybe the great cathedrals aren't the place to look for Jesus. Maybe it's the lowliest places on earth. So what do we do with all this? 
I don't know about you, but I just, I, when I see this and, it's, and all these pieces come together like a puzzle, I just see Jesus for the greater than Moses Messiah he is. But on top of seeing him as this greater than Moses Messiah, I'm just, I'm just awed at how even in the details of the symbolism of the differences between the provisions, Jesus is our great Savior and provider. And that's my plea to you today is just be awed by who he is and by this amazing, stunning, almost overwhelming realization of who he is. Then be awed at the miracle worker that Jesus is. Who can do such a thing as feed 5,000 plus people with just five barley loaves and two little fish? My sons went ice fishing yesterday and they came home with trout. You know, the, and I'm, it was kind of a little, I'll be honest with you, it was just a little freaky. I was just finishing the, the, you know, I was just finished up putting the final touches on this sermon about Jesus feeding with five loaves and two fishes and they come walking to the door with a bunch of trout. Ten little trout. Okay, just relax. Just relax. Don't freak out completely. And I'm looking at these trout and I'm like, wait, they haven't, you know, they haven't cleaned them or filleted them. And I'm looking at these things and I'm like, this is not going to be the same size as the big slabs of salmon in the store. Right? This is not going to be the same thing. Right? And they've only got ten. And I'm thinking, Daniel, Josh, me, Amy, Reagan, five people. I better plan on a sandwich after we get done eating these ten little fish. Because even with two each, by the time you clean it and fillet it and get rid of the bones, there's just not going to be a lot there. And here Jesus takes two wee little fish and these five little barley loaves and feeds these several thousand people, seven, maybe 10,000 people. This is, who can do such a thing? Wow. This miracle worker, Jesus. But then we have an uncomfortable question that immediately raises, especially if we're not enjoying the absolute best of times. Is this Jesus, the miracle worker, still the same miracle worker today? Does he still do miracles? Yes. Know that this same miracle working Jesus is the same today as in that day. And in our days of desperate need, whether it's a physical or spiritual one, he will give us what we need and it will be good. And it will be given just when we need it. I'm not talking to you theoretically from a objective, disconnected, intellectual mindset. There are things I haven't told you about the course of the past three months and in the days of my desperate need. He gave me just what I needed, just when I needed it. There were so many times I was at the end of my rope. And in the darkest moments, 
physically and metaphorically. He was there. Yes, he still is the same miracle worker today that he was that day. It may not be as dramatic and glamorous as feeding 5,000 people or 7,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. But in certain contexts, you could say our need was even greater than that need that day. Nobody was probably going to die if Jesus didn't feed them right there that moment. It may have been uncomfortable. and They may have been walking home hungry, but they probably weren't going to die. But yet there are periods and moments in all of our lives where we know if Jesus doesn't show up soon, we ain't going to make it. We're not going to make it to the next day. And then he does. Sometimes he gives just enough to get through that day. And then mercifully, sometimes he just breaks through the wall that we've run up against. And I make the case to you this morning that his busting through the wall that we've run up against, even when it's mentally and emotionally, is still just as much of a miracle as feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. I'll just put it this way. It was more real to me when he bust through my walls than it is when I read about him feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. So what are you going to do with this? I hope you are going to worship Jesus with a richer, deeper fullness than you did before you walked in the door and heard these words of mine. And I'm hoping that you're not just going to worship him with a deeper and richer fullness. You're going to be resolved and resolute in the most difficult of times that you face in the future, knowing that this Jesus still makes miracles happen in the darkest moments of your own heart, mind, soul, and life. And so with that, with that, my brothers and sisters, let us just sing of the glory and goodness of our miracle-saving Jesus.